Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast listeners. Today, I have a special guest on the show, Gabriele Columbro. I went to the FinTech Open Source Foundation Form, known as the Finos Open Source Strategy Form, a few months ago in New York City and got to see so much between FinTech, big banks, big tech, reg tech, privacy tech, and so many industries all around FinTech. And what was so exciting about this form is the mastermind behind it, Gab, as we'll call him, has done a lot of great work on bridging the gap with the finance industry between New York, Europe, and now globally. And love to hear Gab's story. And Gab, thanks so much for being with us on the show. Well, thank you, David, for having me. It's exciting to be here. You know, one of my favorite things about the Open Source Strategy Forum is as a developer myself in data science and AI, I love to code. And what was so exciting about the forum is you didn't only have banks, you didn't only have fintech companies. GitHub was there. A lot of code platforms were there about taking open source code. I thought it was so powerful. And we've seen it in so many industries before, but not traditionally in finance. Why do you see now is a great time for open source standards and open source collaboration in the finance industry? Well, that's a great question. And thank you so much for the kind words. The open source strategy forum, especially the one last year that you attended to, has certainly been probably the highest point of our community and our foundation. You pointed out the code. I think that's a really important angle. We have at the conference so many decision makers and technical leaders from the industry, but you know, pretty much an evenly split mix between again technology decision makers and, and developers. And you know, why I mentioned that is really that we see open source as really as a bridging factor, not only as you mentioned between financial institution and technology, but even within financial service institution, between sort of two worlds we've been which have been historically separated, you know, the world, the world of decision makers, the world of business, and the world of financial uh, 
developers, fintech developers. We think open source has a huge potential and we've seen it over and over again over the last couple of years to bridge this gap in a way everyone wins with open source. Uh, but to your original question, how, you know, why are we seeing this surge of open source in financial services? Look, I'd love to say that it's because of the work that our foundation, the FinTech Open Source Foundation does, that's the only reason, but that would be a little bit too presumptuous. Uh, of course, we have helped the industry coming together as a nonprofit providing a trusted umbrella for open source collaboration to happen in the industry. But I think there are some major shifts happening in the industry and, and sort of all the drivers, all the arrows pointing to open source as a, you know, brand new way forward for this industry, very much like, as you mentioned, several other industries have already realized over the last couple of decades. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons. I think there are systemic reasons why we're seeing the rise of open source in financial services. Uh, margins, uh, revenues are nowhere nearly where they were 10 years ago in this industry. The cost of regulation keeps rising. And so ultimately, the margins are, again, nowhere nearly where they were just a few years ago. So there's not an infinite amount of money to be thrown at every single technology problem in the industry. And open source certainly has, you know, had a history of reducing technology costs, reducing total TCO. And so certainly, oftentimes, that's one of the main driving reasons for financial institutions looking at uh, open source collaboration. If you pair that with um, every financial institutions and beyond want to consider themselves a technology company nowadays in the realization that, you know, large part of their stacks are non-differentiating, are really non-unique selling points, well, then open source becomes a really good way to mutualize some of those costs. And finally, again, just talking about systemic issues, if you look at the talent crunch, Wall Street is in an even, even deeper talent crunch than the rest of the technology industry. And certainly, top talent oftentimes prefers working on a West Coast sort of Silicon Valley tech company versus sort of the appeal that the financial services industry had maybe uh, 10 or 20 years ago. And so open source provides a way for you know, this first to access a much larger, much broader talent pool and certainly allow every individual to continue fostering its own portfolio. I mean, the moment you, you know, are able to contribute back to GitHub to put your name out there, uh, that sort of delivers value not only to your employer, but delivers value to you as an individual. And, you know, I wouldn't be here hadn't I started coding in the open about 20 years ago. And certainly I would not hire anyone without looking at their GitHub profile nowadays. So I think those are sort of the main three systemic issues that are driving this focus on open source. And then, you know, a couple of more tactical reasons. I think we were able to remove a lot of the barriers and misconception around open source. You know, huge acquisitions like the Red Hat or the GitHub acquisition, uh, respectively, from IBM and Microsoft last year, really shown the line on, on the fact, shown the light on the fact that you know open source doesn't doesn't equal free. That there's a lot to be saved, but also a lot of money to be made on open source. And so that's what I think. Not only 
financial institutions, but a lot of fintech startups are more and more looking at, at open source as a viable way of uh, going to market. Gab, it's so interesting that you talk about the talent crunch because traditionally we look at talent from a startup perspective that we cannot hire enough technical people, whether they're software engineers or data scientists, but one would not traditionally think that that would be the case with banking. You look at banking in New York City, for example, as a financial hub in the United States, and you know traditionally what would students do? They would go to undergraduate business or MBAs and go straight into banking, working for big firms like Goldman Sachs, RBC, Deutsche Bank, and even some of the big players like Bloomberg and Refinitiv in the alternative data space. But we've seen that shift, as you mentioned, in the last five to 15 years towards fintech startups and other firms. But I think the shift is going back to banking for many reasons. I think it's that, well, economies are driven by finance and financial institutions help create stability, create security. And in this new age of needing data privacy and data security, a lot of startups have not met with those issues first, while banks are usually seen as those trusted custodians with your secure and private data. And they're ones that look after you. So so I think maybe that talent crunch, we're going to see that shift to be uh, more friendly for financial institutions over time. You know, one thing we're seeing in New York, of course, was in 2016 and 2017, the launch of Cornell Tech. And Cornell Tech is a partnership between Technion Institute and Cornell. And the focus has been a lot on product management. And initially, all the graduates who um, go from these masters and PhD programs, you know, the industry thought, oh, it would all be the startups. But a lot of these graduates are going to big banks and helping improve production with product management. I mean, I know for a fact, I have friends in New York who work for JP Morgan and they do product management today. So it's it's no longer just finance and operations jobs, but there are tech jobs at the banks as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a huge amount of talent in large corporations, in large financial institutions. I do think though that you know, even from a generational standpoint, you know, uh, the new generation, which I often refer as the GitHub generation, you know, has grown up with very much like, you know, in terms of personal interaction, this generation has grown up with, you know, social tools and, you know, a really different way of even just sort of basically interacting with each other. Well, the new generation of developer that, that we see coming up really comes, A, with being born and bred in GitHub, with not only sort of the social aspect of collaborating in the open, but really all the best of breed, uh, really easy to use tooling from bringing code, you know, from ideation to actual release, the whole sort of world of pipeline, CICD, tools that are extremely integrated, you know, the old style of waterfall development, uh, where you need, you know, your dev and your ops uh, people with different responsibilities has drastically changed, of course, with the introduction of, of this hybrid figure of DevOps. But the second element, so not only they have sort of higher requirements in terms of, you know, uh, development process and, and the way they interact with other developers and how a successful high-velocity project has to be run, but there's also an angle of, you know, wanting to give back, if you think about it. 
sometimes millennials are, are made fun of. And maybe I am a millennial, depending on who you ask. I'm 38 years old, so maybe on the cusp. But, you know, I've heard from our board members, you know, from the large uh, bulge bracket firms, many times new uh, talent coming, you know, in interview process and asking, okay, what are you doing to give back to the community? Uh, you know, I want to make an impact. And, and so you've seen over the last few years, financial services institutions being more and more sort of mindful of this aspect. And look, I want to be clear here. I don't think open source is charity. I certainly think that there's an element of conscience, of openness, on not reinventing the wheel for which, you know, open source is, is good for the world, uh, if we want to be grand here. But to be clear, everyone... And most corporates that participate to open source right now and even to our foundation, they do it with a business goal. So it's not necessarily per se charity. I don't think open source should be considered charity, but it's certainly a very powerful answer during an individual interview process to be able to say, yes, we do open source. Yes, we don't reinvent the wheel. Yes, you'll be able to continue fostering your own personal profile if you work for us because you're allowed to contribute to open source. And that's where our foundation over the last three years really put a lot of effort into enabling, you know, the thousands and thousands of existing developers in the firms to be able to participate, you know, as first-class citizens in open source communities. So just to wrap up, it's not just talent acquisition, it's certainly a lot of talent retention as well. It's so incredible that you just went into that deep dive gap because open source is, as we know it, more than code. Yes. To participate as that first class citizen in your industry, well, there's other things. There's frameworks and framework development. And we know some of the companies like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs you know, have different frameworks that have been very much open sourced in the industry. But beyond that, there are standards and there's policies and there's collaboration. So I think one of the big myths to dispel is that new users to GitHub and open source think all it is is code, but it's actually much more than that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think that one of the reasons why, why you've seen not just the rise of open source out there, but also if you look at the last few years, the, ra- the rise of foundations like ours of non-profit open source foundations, you know, think about the Linux Foundation, think about the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, more recently the Continuous Delivery Foundation, or even Hyperledger on the blockchain space. It's really because open source is not easy, especially if you are a corporate, especially if you are a large corporate who's seeking to collaborate either with its competitors or with its customers and ecosystem at large through open source. Code is certainly important, and, and the quality of the code, you know, we believe to open source is, is higher, given that, you know, there's so many highs pointed on it. Everyone feels a bit more accountable for what they put out there than, you know, necessarily what, what you do behind the firewall. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, you mentioned policies. Several of the financial institutions that we started working with a few years ago didn't even have an open source contribution policy. They would, you know, not allow their developers to even access GitHub. And, you know, this little anecdote, I used to be a consultant 20 years ago, you know, going and solving open source problems for customers. And I remember walking into some of the customers and them telling me, yeah, no, sorry, we, we don't allow access to Google 
in our infrastructure. Uh, you know, I'd basically be dead as a consultant, as an open source consultant without Google, I'd be useless. So I, I certainly feel for many of these developers who, who until a couple of years ago did not have access to, to GitHub. And so certainly there's an element of internal policy. There's an element of external policy. You know, regulated industries are very understandably risk averse and very much careful about what degree of collaboration they have with their competitors. And so that's why you see foundations like ours provide a very structured governance framework, conflict of interest policies, antitrust policies, really, again, making sure that it's clear that through transparency, you can achieve a very productive level of collaboration without uh, any sort of uh, compliance concerns, you know, without driving your compliance uh, folks crazy. Policy is one element. You mentioned standards, you know, the world of open standards and the world of open source are historically very different, but they are more and more colliding because they reinforce each other. It isn't, you know, I've been working in several standards in the past and, you know, it's always been the same story. When you add open source to the mix, when you add an open source reference implementation to an existing standard that drastically speeds up the rate of adoption and certainly the rate of compatibility, cross-compatibility through the standards. As you know, you know, from the browser words in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, standard doesn't always mean the same thing to every single vendor. And finally, kind of going back to, you know, the generational and cultural aspects, there's a lot to learn before, you know, you can be effective and productive in an open source community the same way you, you do it in an internal project. You need to relinquish control in favor of influence. And that's a big step for, you know, hierarchical organizations, large corporate hierarchical organizations but there's also an element of, you know, code of conduct and behavior. Open source communities are driven by meritocracy, are driven by the more contribution, the more sweat equity you put into, the more influence you have. And that doesn't always match with the idea of, say, a large bank saying, hey, I'm JP Morgan, I'm Goldman Sachs, I should have more of a say on uh, this code decision. Truth is, that's something that, that, you know, foundations like ours put a lot of effort into you know, making sure that, of course, we're very thankful to our paying members as they, you know, drive our foundation and, you know, get certainly more uh, value out of engaging in our community. But, you know, as any open source community, everyone is welcome to participate. And we got to balance this tension between, you know, wanting to give more to our members whilst making sure that, again, our community is driven, uh, uh, you know, in a purely meritocratic fashion. And so, that's sort of the other aspect. Again, policy, standards, and culture are, are really important elements of successful open source collaboration. And, you know, where, where we're still doing a lot of education. You know, similar to what I'm hearing from you today, Gab, about the finance industry and open source and, and how education is meeting reality and how now there's frameworks and collaboration and standards. I mean, this is not just for the finance industry. This is the entire developer community. I mean, the Department of Defense, after years of putting out proposals for what does it mean to be open source? What does it mean to have AI systems, good data systems in place? 
just in the beginning of 2020, they came out with their five pillars that they think are important for AI, data science, open source, you know, the whole gamut yep. of the developer lifecycle. And what I heard from you is very similar. They said the five pillars are to be responsible, to be equitable, to be traceable, to be reliable, and to be governable. Yep. And I feel like there's so much in common with what you're doing at the foundation. Well, absolutely. I, I think of the five pillars that you mentioned, and thanks for bringing that up. That's really topical. Um, I mean, two points. First, a general comment on the fact that, you know, of course, government is one of the sort of models that we're using for uh, modeling the collaboration in our community. As you can hear from my accent, I... I uh, I live in San Francisco, but I'm from that Italian part, I guess, of, of San Francisco. I actually come from Italy. And, you know, 15 years ago, when I started my career, 20 years ago, open sourcing government was just, you know, a mirage. And then quickly, in, in 10 years, you've seen the European Union mandating open source as sort of first choice for public tenders, the U.S. here with uh, code.gov quickly following into having a sort of federal-wide approach to open source. So actually governments, you know, in, in 10, 15 years, which is not that much for government time, you know, was able to realize and, and put a f structure around this. Well, certainly this is one of the models that we're using for, you know, creating a, an effective and, and transparent community in financial services. But I think of the five pillars... I am particularly fond, and certainly the foundation by extension, I am particularly fond of two of them. Governable is obviously a lot of what foundations do is governance and code governance and corporate governance. We have, you know, all of our governance is public and transparent, which sort of gets me to the second point, which is sort of traceability. Very much every decision that happens in the foundation is traceable and is auditable, whether it happens on, on the mailing list, whether it happens on a meeting that we minute and we put minutes out there. I think that's been, at the beginnings of the foundation, has been one of the sort of biggest hurdles to overcome in an industry that is generally, again, for good reason, risk averse and secretive, you know, overcoming this idea that, you know, most, if not all, the collaboration should happen in the open. It's been really hard. But on the flip side, it is what has built an unprecedented level of trust amongst the players in our community. I had the luck to inherit when I started the board of, again, the most influential senior people at the, these large bulge bracket banks, large vendors, like you mentioned, Refinity, IHS Market, Standard & Poor's. We would not have gotten to the point that we are now with several lively collaborative projects and, you know, really banks looking at us as the main outlet for their open sourcing, hadn't we sort of took a pretty hard stance on the need for transparent governance and transparent collaboration. So I am uh, really pleased to see that the sort of Department of Defense is going in this direction as well. Excellent. And, you know, speaking about directions that not just the DOD is going, but, you know, the foundation and being in 2020, you know, I think the last 10 years, we've seen so much in all industries 
focused on data, you know, show me the data. And, you know, myself as a data scientist and a professor and an industry practitioner, I've recently launched my five steps for design thinking for data science. And these five steps, I think a lot of it, you know, is what financial organizations do today. So uh, the five steps are really simple. I give them very clean names. So the first one's one, data cleaning, two, data refinement, three, data expansion, four, data learning, and five, data maintenance. So that's my five steps. You clean your data, you refine it, you expand it, you learn from it, and you maintain it. And, you know, you can give it many different names, right? Data cleaning could be, you know, pre-processing, you know, data refinement could be feature engineering, data expansion could be, you know, APIs and integrations, data learning could be your machine learning, your, your modeling, and data maintenance could be that deployment, the ethics, and and understanding about the processes. But, you know, I feel that the first three is where a lot of work's been in finance for many years, cleaning, refining, expanding, but not that much attention's been put on the learning and the maintenance, or simply put, the machine learning and the AI. So I wanted to hear your take, you know, any thoughts on where the industry and, and the work you're doing with the foundation is going around machine learning and AI? Well, uh, it's a really, really interesting question. And I think, you know, of course, from our perspective, we look at everything we do in a collaborative manner. And so in a way, adds another layer of complexity, meaning, you know, as a foundation, as a community, we don't represent a single entity. And of course, I can, you know, talk about uh, on notional terms what I think single entities are doing. But from our standpoint, you know, we represent several firms wanting to collaborate with each other. And so before you can actually dive, we've had, you know, several conversations about starting programs or, you know, our programs are sort of cohesive set of areas where we collaborate on. There's been several conversations on, you know, should we start an AI ML focused program and, you know, really start building solutions or frameworks that make uh, financial data sharing easier and certainly, more importantly, build on it for uh, advanced AI and ML features that clearly this industry is using and craving every day for more of. But when you look at it from the perspective of an entity that needs to work with several parties, in my mind, we are still a little uh, early, if you want. The first step is harmonizing the data across these different institutions. I mean, coming from, as a background from different industries, you know, whilst obviously there are standards in the industry and whilst obviously things like Fix or, you know, Swift, of course we have had at several times attempts to, to harmonize the data. There's still a degree of bespoke data representation and data mapping and a very siloed approach to data between the different firms that we think, you know, the first step for us to be able to then build on top of, of a more harmonized set of data flows is really, you know, open standards, is really open standard on one end and then providing, as I mentioned before, the sort of open source reference implementation behind that standard to really 
accelerate the adoption. And so that's what you see in our foundation, you know, efforts like, you know, the JP Morgan perspective contribution, that's more of a data visualization library that's sort of a little bit more higher in the stack, but even more fundamentally, you know, you were at the open source strategy forum, we had a big announcement from Goldman uh, announcing the contribution of their Alloy visual modeling framework, which is a really amazing, you know, basically web IDE for data modeling. Think about it like a, you know, very advanced web-based modeler for all sort of uh, data and data mapping with a whole underlying language called Pure, which Goldman has been using through and through the organization for all sort of modeling, whether that's regulatory reporting modeling, whether that's, you know, more internal pricing models. We are certainly really excited for that contribution, but that sort of to your question shows how there is an intention and a goal for the industry to better model the data in a collaborative way. To be clear, the goal here is not only to collaborate on the code itself, on the, you know, visual modeler and on the language, but it's even more importantly to collaborate on the models themselves. And so that's where, you know, Finos is providing for now a, a pilot instance for our members to start collaborating on some specific instrument and some specific data model. And the goal will then be to continue using this platform once it's fully open sourced. We expect that to happen within Q2 and Q3 to really then potentially involve the regulators and uh, really create this common modeling tool and common set of data models in the hope that then with common data models, we can start building on top of it uh, common tools and common, ideally, AI and ML intelligence around it. But I think to your question, when you look at you know, when you externalize yourself from a single firm and you look at the industry at large, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on, you know, how sort of basic represent, basic common representation of data. That has to be, you know, the starting point. Otherwise, we'll, you know, whatever we build, we still need sort of this, you know, N by N need of mapping data into your own, firm's model. I mean, I've, I've seen, uh, kind of quoting Blade Runner here, I've seen things <laughs> which in terms of sort of data modeling and, and for you, like a data scientist will probably make you itch uh, uh, in terms of that data is modeled. So definitely looking at standardization as a first step. Of course, there are other initiatives that are ongoing uh, beyond this, but as far as our foundation is concerned, we're still, uh, you know, se- we have several initiatives around data standardization first. Yeah, it's incredible to see, you know, I've, I've got to play around with at least the JP Morgan perspective package and to see how, you know, that was a collaboration internal. And now so many financial institutions are creating fantastic visualizations from this open source code. It sounds that the same will soon be possible with Pure Alloy from Goldman Sachs for modeling. And, and that's going to help with machine intelligence. But just as you mentioned, Gab, one of the biggest challenges we always see with financial institutions 
institutions. It's, it feels like it's been around since the dawn of time is data security, data privacy, and how do you manipulate and use and secure data? And I think that's maybe been one of the things we've not solved yet. But, you know, how do you think we can better address data privacy or what are banks doing today with data privacy? Well, there was a, a really interesting you know, just to mention an example here, there was a really interesting initiative that I participated to from the World Economic Forum, who was really focusing on, okay, what are the top issues to really enable this data sharing? Again, going back to the conservative nature of this industry, it is absolutely understandable how institutions who have not only such a regulated nature, but obviously they have very sensitive information about their customers would have, you know, would think twice before sharing that information with some of their competitors, whether that's because it's a unique differentiator or even just because of, you know, fear of of breaking some regulation. And as you know, sometimes regulations are not as clear cut as we'd want them to be. And so it was interesting to sit in this sort of pan-industry initiative which brought in both community banks, retail banks, you know, bulge bracket investment banks, uh, regulators were in the mix, vendors, really look at and pros and cons. It's been a really interesting report published by the World Economic Forum. And look, not to sort of sound biased here, but one of the key issues that was identified was, again, lack of data standardization. And that's where we're pushing hard on our side. And certainly identifying more technical solutions to enable sharing in a safe way. So as I was saying, yeah, this report was really interesting because it went from, it really ranged from regulatory issues to data standards to really technology advancements that, you know, AI and ML is driving uh, that firms should sort of hone in and double down on. Interestingly, this report was published mid last year, and Google quickly followed up in September last year with open sourcing their differential privacy framework, you know, an extension to TensorFlow. And, you know, again, differential privacy like homomorphic encryption, like zero knowledge proofs, were really some of the key areas that this World Economic Forum report had identified for financial services to, you know, double down on to to better collaborate in the open. So kind of interesting to see how, you know, in a way, big tech through open sourcing is enabling some of this better collaboration happening also in financial services. That's so important because as data scientists and practitioners in the industry and for listeners of the show, you know, we know today that every day things are being hacked. We have deep fakes as we're continuing to accelerate into election 2020, where pretty much every candidate's been deep fake, dubbed, redubbed, re-audioed. And so it's not just there, but even with machine learning models, it's a very known secret in the data science world that you can 
reverse engineer a model and anonymized data can often get de-anonymized. So it sounds like this TensorFlow privacy or this differential privacy extension could maybe help mitigate that and be used with all industries. And, you know, I think what you're sharing there really goes more than just at privacy and more than just regulation, but it really goes back to open source that, you know, TensorFlow is open source, even though it's an initiative, you know, that's sponsored by Google and they have a team that's helping build and and strengthen the whole community that open source and open standards, they're really a means to an end. They're really about building an interoperable world. And if we were in a perfect world today, would we need open source? You know, it's really here to help us get to a better steady state. I... Hey, you know, I might be biased, but I couldn't agree more with that statement, David. Uh, uh, like we say in Italy, you're, you're breaking an open door here. Yes, I mean, look, I think we are learning more and more as we go through this journey of, you know, something that even 10 years ago would probably be flagged as a DLP audit violation, you know. We're learning more and more that it's not just about banks collaborating with each other. We started with that. That was our early focus, getting individual firms to be able to collaborate in the open and then get them to trust each other that this methodology can deliver value for the whole industry. You know, as a 501c6 nonprofit foundation, we are chartered to do the good of the whole industry. We are a trade association, a business league that's supposed to promote advancements in the whole financial services industry. But we have seen that as a very powerful mean, to your point, to also enable a better collaboration between financial services institutions and the up-and-coming fintech firms. We have several fintechs participating in our community, and I want to say there's so much more that even fintechs can do with open source in this industry. There is a very high potential for disruption of a very you know, locked-in industry in many ways, vendor locked-in industry in many ways. But again, open source can be a mean for financial institutions to really have an alternative to the you know, usual make-or-buy uh, decision. I mean, do I make it myself? Do I buy or invest in an up-and-coming startup? You know, we've seen the acquisition of Plaid over the last couple of weeks. Well, there's actually a third way that open source provides, which is you can collaborate with several fintechs at the same time, whether that's on an open standard, whether that's on a you know, reference, core reference implementation for a key use case that then one or more startups can bring to market. Well, look, open source really provides a powerful way to influence rather than control the evolution of the whole fintech ecosystem because otherwise you know my guess is that we'll move from a centralized mess to a completely decentralized mess and that's not going to be good for ultimately us you know the average end users of the whole financial services complex so finance to finance finance to fintech and certainly you know more and more we're seeing uh, finance to big tech you know in this now, long-standing hate and love relationship between the East Coast and the West Coast, we are seeing some really successful inroads in our foundation where not only we have several financial institutions, but we have, you know, the GitHubs, the Red Hats, the GitLabs, 
the cloud bees of the world participating with us. Certainly, we, we expect more of these uh, large vendors coming and really playing ball in a foundation that is really the only one that is solely focused on financial services. Last but not least, I'm going to sneak it in there. We have seen an increased interest from regulators in what we are doing. And, you know, that goes back also to the conversation on data privacy. Obviously, there's a lot of regulatory concern there, there's a lot of privacy concern there, but that's just one element. We think that open source, you know, with this transparent nature, with its um, sort of talent pool expanding nature, with its you know, going back to traceability, what's better traceable than a piece of open source code that you can look at paired with a, say, transparent CI/CD immutable pipeline that brings that code to production without anyone being able to touch it and just fully automated? Well, we think that that's almost an ideal value proposition for regulators that are not only right now having to learn how every single firm complies to requirements, but also how do they bring it to production and who has access to it? Well, we think that open source and, again, paired with uh, the whole pipeline, uh, immutable pipeline uh, concept, is really valuable for regulators to be able to say, you know, write the policy once and enforce everywhere. Kind of that idea of, well, if we were all to do it the same way, considering that it's not a competitive differentiator for anyone, it's an item on the bottom line for every financial institution, well, that's really a good driver for financial institutions and fintechs to collaborate in the open. And we could bring in regulators to make sure that what we're building once is actually satisfactory against the regulatory requirements. And, you know, I'll throw one more thing in there, which is we talked about talent crunch before. Well, if financial institutions are seeing a talent crunch, well, let's not even start talking about regulators because, of course, a regulator in general cannot offer sort of a competitive package to a financial institution. So oftentimes, it becomes really hard for regulators to keep up with latest technology advancements. And so that's where open source can come to the rescue. Rather than having to train and specialize people in every single system that you're going to have to go and, and regulate, you can build a broader talent pool if the implementation and the process is dealt in the open. So we expect for us in 2020, certainly a lot of focus on what we call compliance as code, compliance and open source code. Again, because it's good for financial institutions, it's good for tech companies, it's good for the regulators. Whether we call it compliance as code, whether we think of ethical AI, responsible systems, traceable systems, governable systems, one thing's for certain, between the big tech, between the fintech, between the finance and all the players in the industry, we have to work together to build better systems because it's about everyone. It's about all of us humans. It's all about all of us customers as consumers and enterprises. And we have to have safe, secure data and have a world where if we're private first with good systems, then anything's possible, right? We can 
build and scale systems, we can have open source uh, leading that direction. And uh, I love the work that you're doing at Finos. And uh, Gab, thanks so much for being with us today on the Humane Podcast. David, let me start by thanking you for allowing me to share some exciting news in the financial services open source landscape on your channel. It is exciting and we all are very proud to announce today that Finas, the FinTech Open Source Foundation, will join forces with the Linux Foundation. We just announced this today on April 9th, 2020. For those of you who are less familiar with the Linux Foundation, the Linux Foundation is really the biggest shared collaborative technology investment in the world. They are an open source powerhouse, in other words. The Linux Foundation is really an umbrella for several different open source efforts, uh, many of which really create the backbone of the modern technology infrastructure, as well as, you know, in many cases, they really have created new markets. You know, think about Kubernetes, Hyperledger, or even Node, Electron, as well as obviously the Linux kernel itself. So we are extremely excited for Finus to join a larger, broader community, and certainly one that has proven over and over again how you know open source is really a very powerful way to solve uh, shared business challenges together, not just technology challenges. So Finus will become the financial services focused umbrella for the Linux Foundation, and we expect this to have several benefits for our community and for our members. I think mostly, as far as Finos goes, you know, we believe that this will help us accelerate the growth of our foundation in more than one way. Well, first of all, the Linux Foundation has a global reach, has more than 1,600 members, and so we believe this will help us bring to the table more and more members, again, globally, from both the tech and financial services industry to really help us accelerate the growth of our team, of our community, and really the reach of what we do. Secondly, the Linux Foundation has a massive reach in terms of projects. And so we expect becoming the financial services umbrella under the Linux Foundation to really drive more projects that really solve uh, increasingly important business challenges in the industry to Finas. Last but not least, I think the cultural aspect is a, is a fundamental one. DLF hosts several very mature open source efforts. And so we believe that this cross-pollination will be absolutely important for a community that is relatively new to open source like the financial services industry. And I want to say, especially in these unprecedented times with the COVID-19 challenge that the world is facing, it feels really good to be part of a, a broader foundation, of a broader community. Again, as we all learn how important collaborating across border is to fight you know, challenges and solve problems that uh, none of us can do in isolation. So I'm really excited and the team is really excited. Uh, we are really looking forward to a bright future for open source and financial services. So 
Let me thank you again for this opportunity to share the news with you and for any interest in contributing to the foundation, joining the foundation, please reach out to me or at info at phenos.org and we'd love to welcome you to a new and bigger Phenos community. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.